the Truth Tank. I am your charismatic host, The Tank. Thank you to everyone who listened to episode one. So we are back for the Truth Tank, episode two. Tonight's show is going to be huge. It's going to be a multi-part episode. We'll be looking at the fate of the Star Wars sequels under Disney's ownership and Kathleen Kennedy's leadership at Lucasfilms. If you're not into Star Wars, yeah, I get it, but I had to say this. But you might learn something, uh, especially about the gaming industry in particular. Alright, so let's get into tonight's show. A long time ago in a galaxy not too far away, before the dark times, there was an intellectual property that was beloved by millions around the world. The themes and characters were unique and original, touching the lives of fans everywhere. It was a time of prosperity and peace throughout the galaxy. Fans got along and debated who was the best character and the positive and negative traits of the prequel trilogy. It didn't matter what race or creed you were, everyone was accepted. The magic of Star Wars was strong. Young and old flocked to theatres around the globe to see the next instalment of the single greatest franchise in human history. Devotees would often dress as their favourite characters and line up for hours, sometimes days or even weeks in the rain, hail or the shine to see their beloved world come to life on the big screen. The love was shared, tons of merchandise was brought, costumes were made into the wee small hours of the morning. That was until the dark times. When the creator, George Lucas, decided to sell his creation to the Walt Disney Company under the leadership of the newly appointed CEO of Lucasfilm, Kathleen Kennedy, Little did he know that Kathleen Kennedy was a snake lying in wait. She single-handedly destroyed the most beloved and profitable intellectual property in history. Her treachery spread like an uncontrollable virus, infecting all aspects of Lucasfilm. And in the process, it shattered millions of diehard fans' childhoods and lives. The evil Kathleen Kennedy used our beloved Star Wars as a platform for toxic ideologies of diversity and gender politics in an attempt to spread her feminazi agenda. She tricked and betrayed the creator, destroying what he had worked and fought so hard to create all those years ago. Kathleen Kennedy and Disney laid waste to the memory of Star Wars, launching a war against the fans, pitting original trilogy and sequel trilogy fans against each other in a never-ending argument for supremacy. The war rages on. Villains are everywhere. Can our beloved franchise be saved from the evil clutches of Kathleen Kennedy and the mouse and the shill employees of Lucasfilm? True fans everywhere look for a hero to restore balance and order to the Star Wars universe. So as you could have probably guessed from my little rendition of the Star Wars opening crawl. Star Wars is pretty close to my heart, as it is to millions of other people around the world. So episode 2 is going to be devoted to shedding some light on what has happened in recent years with the buyout of Lucasfilm by Disney, and what has happened with the sequel trilogies, uh, ranging from comics, games, and toys. Everything's going to be covered in tonight's episode. So tonight's episode is going to be looking at the current state of the Star Wars universe under Disney and Kathleen Kennedy. We're going to be looking at you know the comics, uh, gaming industry, toys, 
every aspect of Lucasfilm and Star Wars is going to be looked at in the next couple of episodes. If you're not into Star Wars, I, I get it. You might learn something either way, especially with the gaming industry and the way these huge companies treat fans. I know what you're thinking. What the fuck has Star Wars got to do with anything? It's just a movie, right? Well, wrong. It's not just a movie. Star Wars transcends the screen and traditional forms of media to become one of the most beloved pop cultural phenomenons. I mean, no other film in history has had the reach or has crossed so many different forms of media than Star Wars. The Star Wars franchise has been going strong for over 40 years. That is until now, but more on that later. The Star Wars Empire includes not only three trilogies of films, two spin-off films and counting, several TV shows, hordes of books and comics, also known as the Expanded Universe, video games, fan fiction, and the endless supply of merchandise, ranging from t-shirts, coffee mugs, and of course, who could forget the massively successful and profitable and never-ending line of toys. From a business standpoint, the Star Wars brand has been one of the most successful franchises in history. Lucasfilm is the largest and most successful independent studio of all time. I mean, Lucasfilm is one of the few independent production companies that has rivaled Universal Pictures or 20th Century Fox and some of the other major players in the film world. Lucasfilm's success can be traced back to George Lucas's to George Lucas's idea of not being or not wanting to be tied down to studios, not wanting to pander or manipulate his artwork to fit their format. Like I think he once said that the original Star Wars was about 25% of his original vision. He said if he had it his way, he'd have to re- he'd remake it it would be completely different to the final product. He had a limited budget of about $2.5 million to work with, which is you know, mind-blowing now, considering the average budget of a Star Wars film is about you know, $230 million plus. So he had to work with a budget of $250 million, and he created one of the most beloved films in history. I mean, the world he created from that single idea of Star Wars enriched the lives of millions of fans for decades to come. I don't think George Lucas could even predict how big Star Wars grew. I mean, it literally redefined the blockbuster film. It it literally um, it created the blockbuster, the event of going to the film, of going to the movies again. I mean, this is one of the first times we've seen lines of people lined up around the blocks for hours and hours waiting to see Star Wars. And in most cases, people were seeing the film getting back on the line, seeing it again, getting back on the line and seeing it again. They'd see it two or three times in a day. I mean, this is this is un, uh, unprecedented in the 1970s. This is all from a film that was turned down by basically every production company in Hollywood saying that audiences wouldn't understand it. No one's going to pay money to see a, you know, a sci-fi opera. No one's going to understand these characters. You have a, you know, a guy in a mask who's one of the central characters. You have... A, you know, a space princess, a farm boy, a smuggler, and a walking carpet. No one's going to get that. But yet, generations of fans for the next 40 years can't get enough of it. I mean, there's millions of kids today who are seeing the originals, who are loving them. It's The themes in Star Wars cross generations, they cross time. 
they crossed cultures whatever whatever language you spoke people understood star wars it's the core values and themes of star wars that have transcended and related to generations over and over again so going back to star wars as a brand one of the star wars brands most profitable one of the Star Wars brand's most profitable sources of revenue have been the numerous variations of toys and related merchandise. Since the release of the first film in 77, since the release of the first film in 1977, George Lucas knew the power of toys as the perfect marketing tool. Right, so I'm going to read an excerpt from George Lucas, A Life by Brian J. Jones. This is a fantastic book on George Lucas's life and you know, basically covers everything from his beginnings as a student filmmaker uh, to the Star Wars Empire and beyond. So this passage relates to the creation of the mer- how the how the merchandising for Star Wars toys started off and some of its some of the uh, some of the revenue generated by it. When approached by Lippincott, neither Mattel nor Ideal had expressed significant interest in making Star Wars toys. Film-based toys, so the common thinking went, had a limited shelf life, with sales sputtering out shortly after the film faded from theatre screens. But Bernard Loomis, the head of Kenner, had struck gold with toys based on the $6 million man television show. The Bonnick Man's accessories and enemies lent themselves to what Loomis called toyetic quality, and he thought he detected a similar quality in Star Wars. Loomis contacted the head of Fox Licensing and quickly closed the deal in May, meeting at the Century Plaza Hotel in Los Angeles. The company's press release cheekily announced that the agreement was good galaxy-wide. The deal recalled Loomis had been made on one condition imposed by Lucas himself in a fit of competitive pike. If Kenner made the toys for Star Wars, it couldn't also make them for Close Encounters of the Third Kind or any other science fiction film. When someone tells me I can't have something, said Loomis, I want to know why. Shortly after signing the contract in Los Angeles, Loomis met Spielberg on the Columbia lot to learn more about the film he had just been denied rights to. Spielberg enthusiastically described Close Encounters, and Loomis admitted that while it sounded like a great movie, it didn't seem toyetic. Well, said Spielberg, it's not Star Wars. It wasn't. Nothing was. The Kenner... And Kenner would quickly find itself trying to meet a tidal wave of demand for toys. Although Kenner had secured its licensing contract in May, it had time to release only a few items, mainly mainly puzzles and board games, by summer. The real toys, the action figures and vehicles, were rushed into development, but to the dis- disappointment of Loomis and millions of kids, wouldn't be ready in time for Christmas 1977. Scrambling, Kenner announced an early bird certificate package, the infamous empty box campaign, Kurtz called it, in which parents could pay $14 for an envelope, with a cardboard display stand, a few stickers, and a certificate that could be mailed into reserve the first four action figures, Luke, Leah, R2, and Chewbacca, which would be delivered to your doorstop the moment they were released. Kenner introduced the package at a fall 1977 toy, toy show and sold out almost immediately, but competitors and retailers openly mocked and guffed, we sell toys, not promises, sniffed one retailer, who refused to sell the early bird kit, while another insisted that children didn't really care whether they get an officially licensed product or not. A robot is a robot. But Loomis was patient. Kids will want the real Star Wars item. He contended, even if they have to wait, it was right. 
Kenner would sell 40 million Star Wars figures in 1978. That's a lot of fucking toys. Another major license, Image Factory, had also seen the potential in Star Wars early and offered Lucas 100000 up front for the exclusive rights to market posters, buttons and ion-on decals. It was an offer that shocked even the profit-conscious Lippincott. We figured they either really knew what they were doing or they were crazy, said Lippincott. Until Star Wars, Image Factory had manufactured belt buckles for record companies and t-shirts featuring rock bands, pulling respectable but not lofty numbers. By the end of the year, Image Factory's posters of a lightsaber-wielding Darth Vader would outsell posters of a rid of a red swimsuit-clad Farrah Fawcett Majors. Returning the company nearly $750,000 on its $100,000 investment, Star Wars could be the type of Davy Crockett phenomena Lucas suggested referring to the 1950s television show that had, starred, that had started a marketing fad. I don't know whether I've done it. I don't know. But he had. And where the Crockett craze had had its coonskin... Hats, Star Wars had, well, everything. There were Halloween costumes, lunch boxes and bubblegum cards, Coca-Cola would market plastic Star Wars cups, Burger Chef would sell posters, a 20-page souvenir program sold 300,000 copies, the double LP soundtrack of Williams Music sold more than 650,000 copies by mid-July. One of the first, and in some cases only, albums of symphonic music many people would own. Meanwhile, a trombonist turned record producer who called himself Miko would release a disc remix of Williams' main theme that would sell 2 million copies and sit atop the Billboard charts for two weeks. Ken Films released an 8-minute Super 8 version of the film while the movie was still in theatres, a practice unheard of at the time. Marvel Comics, rescued from its own perilous financial situation, by the success of Star Wars comics, would continue to create new Star Wars stories over the next decade, spanning 107 issues, and Lucas would finally have his R2-D2 cookie jar. Not that Lucas would license just anything. That summer, he had sat, set up within Lucasfilm yet another company, this one called Black Falcon, a name borrowed from the Black Hawk serials, to oversee a merchandise to oversee all merchandise. It was only it was the only way he explained to control things. I didn't want the market flooded with junk. If it bore the Star Wars name, it had to meet the standards. That Lucas would ever reject a licensing offer, he turned down junk jewelry and toilet seat covers. Stunned the marketing division at Fox, which had rarely seen a deal it didn't like. But Lucas didn't care what Fox thought. And he was irritated by the fact that the studio automatically received half of all merchandising profits for doing nothing but administering the contracts. In his contract for the sequel then, Lucas made it clear that he would continue to split the merchandising profits evenly with Fox only until the July the 1st, 1978, at which point Black Falcon would receive 80% of Fox's 20. It was yet another lopsided contract clause that Ladd had agreed to in order to keep Lucas and Star Wars on the Fox reservation. But Fox executives grown increasingly wary with Ladd and what they saw as his inclination to give Lucas nearly everything he wanted. But what Ladd appreciated 
and Fox didn't, at least not yet, was that Lucas had given the studio more than just a successful movie. He had created a modern mythology that was quickly embedding itself in American popular culture. And Fox's logo, with its distinct fanfare, was at the head of it. In August, 3PO, R2 and Darth Vader would place their feet in the concrete in front of garments, where Star Wars was still showing. In the fall, the Los Angeles Philharmonica performed a concert of Star Wars music at the Hollywood Bowl. Critics held their noses, but audiences went wild for it, promoting a repeat performance the next spring. John Milius, with his typical clarity, thought he understood why Star Wars had struck such a nerve with audiences. What my generation has done is bring back a certain innocence, explained Milius. It's easy to be cynical, it's hard to be corny. But Milius also understood that innocence had consequences, and that Lucas had changed the very landscape of cinema with his accessible, toyetic, lightweight fun, and not necessarily, and not necessarily for the better. Right, so that was taken from pages 258 to 262 of George Lucas, A Life by Brian J. Jones. The knock-on effects of Star Wars were not just um, in the film, mainly, as you can see from that from that passage there, that. The toy industries were basically kick-started by Star Wars toys. I mean, and as you said, like, there's been no other film, in, I think, in history that has continuously sold toys for 40 years. Despite the fact the first film came out 40 years ago, people are still buying the same Luke Han, Chewbacca, Vader, Leia. They still rebuy these figures. And every couple of years, they put out a new line of new line of toys. I think now it's the Black Series, which are a, you know, a high-end action figure designed at adult collectors. So, I mean, the toys are not even... Toys now are not even marketed at children. They're marketed at adults because the adults are the ones who spend the money on the merchandise now, not so much the kids. So essentially, George Lucas funded Lucasfilms by the revenue generated by the toy and merchandising sales. So there's this knock-on effect with Lucasfilm. He, um, so George, he, he creates his companies generated... And that's what I love about George Lucas. He's, he's funded this independent company with the revenue from from films and toys and he's created a you know, company then another company so he's created you know, Black Falcon to handle merchandise down the track he uh, created ILM Industrial Light and Magic THX Sound you know, won't just for creating sounds and visual effects in films that they in cinema sound technology and, and for visual effects until for many years up until I think in the early 2000s and these companies farm themselves out to other productions to create, you know, effects and sounds for other films. And so I admire Lucas for funding, basically funding his empire out of one idea, that spanning another idea, which, you know, the toy sales leads to revenue that he buys a company or he buys a an old factory across the road from the Universal lot, which he turns into his first studio. Then it all goes on from there. That's getting off the point. So getting back on topic. So this is from page 358. Speaking of films, would there be more installments of Star Wars? It was a question that would continue to be lobbed at Lucas wherever he went, shouted at him across hotel lobbies, or tacked on to the end of even the briefest of interviews. This was particularly true in 1987, as fans and media alike marked the 10th anniversary of the release of the first Star Wars. Lucas was surprised by the fuss. While all three Star Wars films had taken $1.4 billion at the box office and another $2.6 billion in merchandising, the blush was clearly off the rose. Sales of Star Wars-related merchandise had virtually petted out. 
The Droids and Ewoks cartoons had already faded from Saturday morning television, although all three films had fared well on a video cassette. The premiere of Star Wars on network TV in 1984 didn't even win its time slot, losing out to the trashy miniseries Lace on ABC. So this gives you a clear indication of the ridiculous amount of merchandising sales generated by these films. A big portion of those sales would be generated just from toys. So the power of toys is the perfect marketing tool. I mean, so this goes as far as to include characters and creatures in the film itself that were tailored to a certain demographic, such as Ewoks in Return of the Jedi. I mean, this is another one of Lucas's genius marketing moves. By, by creating a cute, furry, non-threatening character that appealed to a younger audience that may or may not have seen the previous films, guarantee kids who have seen, seen Return of the Jedi and seen an Ewok would want to go out and buy that piece of merchandise that featured Ewoks on it. I think the original concept design to Ewoks was supposed to be vicious. They had sharp teeth, claws, and they were cannibalistic little creatures. So this is a deliberate ploy by Lucas to make them more kid-friendly to kind of boost boost toy sales, which is kind of genius because if you, if you have a sci-fi fantasy film like Star Wars, you'd want to put as many creatures in it, put as many creatures and characters in it to generate sales because, I mean, collectors like myself are going to go nuts. This... So like, moving on to the next point, Harrison Ford was never a fan of Han, Han Solo. He always wanted Han to be killed off after new, A New Hope. He didn't like the character. He didn't think he's a particularly likable or charismatic character. He, he didn't like him. He always wanted to get killed off. This is another, you know, one of Lucas's genius marketing strategies. I mean, George Lucas even said to Harrison Ford that when he asked him as to why he hadn't killed Han at the end of Return of the Jedi, because I was thinking one of his agreements, he wanted to do Return of the Jedi, but get killed off during the Battle of Endor somewhere. George replied to him, a dead, dead Han doesn't sell toys, which is rightfully so, because over the years there have been numerous lines and versions of figures from the original toy line right through to the higher detail Black Series range. That's aimed more at adult collectors. Even today we've seen basically remakes of the original toys in the original packaging. I mean, they retail for about 17 or $18, uh, in Australia anyway. But we have various versions of the one character in different lines of figures. You know, Han Solo in from the New Hope, Han Solo Empire Strikes Back, Return of the Jedi. Now there's the Solo spin-off film, Han Solo from The Force Awakens. So you have six or seven different incarnations of the character in different lines of figures, ranging from you know original, original figure, original look, vintage-looking figures to the standard figure to the Disney, the, to the kid marketed uh, line, the Star Wars Adventures, I think it's called. Going right through to the more adult-ranged Black Series figures. So the other key factor to, this, to the toy's success has been the collectability of toys, in particular certain characters. I, mean, I remember when The Phantom Menace came out in 99, the Darth Maul figure was by far the most sought-after character on the market. I think it was one of the original, original characters in the first line of toys that were released. Darth Maul being the, the new villain for The Phantom Menace was... I mean, the villain's always going to be in high demand. I mean, I remember it, it took me about a year to find a mall figure, like where I'd go to shops once a week to see if there were any new figures out. I remember I found a mall figure at a local toy shop in the hill somewhere. Uh, it was the only one there. It was a bit more expensive than, you know, me, you know, than my usual 
big W store. I even had to talk my mum into lending me most of the money to buy it. But yeah, this is this, this exclusivity of certain characters. I mean, it's it was a year-long quest just to find that one figure. And you know, the collection is not c- complete unless you get them all. Especially, you can't have a Star Wars collection without the villain. So this is why the toys have become not just merchandise or marketing products, but like the films themselves, they're a part of the culture. I think most hardcore fans have memories of finding a certain character or the thrill that came with finding a, a figure they hadn't they wanted or hadn't seen. Now I can remember my brother and me saving saving our pocket money up and walking up to the shops every two weeks to get a new figure. I mean this is when the Power of the Force line had just recently come out with the launch of the special editions into theaters and on onto VHS. We'd seen the film several years before and had been praying that toys would come out. I'm not sure too sure but I think the Power, Power of the Force line had come out several years prior to the special editions being re uh, being released. So if you still have any doubts that the toy business isn't profitable, George Lucas funded episodes two and three with revenue generated by toy sales from episodes one and then episodes two. So in other words, it's a fucking shitload of toy sales that equals a shitload of fucking money. We're talking about millions and millions of dollars of toys sold, which he then funds the next film and also therefore the next line of toys. So with the sequel trilogy and the spin-offs, the toy sales have had a pretty significant decline. A lot of the new characters are ending up in the bargain bins all across toy stores all, all around the world. Some of them have been reduced to a dollar. Uh, some of these figures are everyone's favorite, Rose Tico and General Hux. So is this a problem with the consumer or the product? Speaking as a, as a collector, the only figure I've ever brought is Kylo Ren, aka the bad guy. I do not have any interest in buying any of the Ray or Finn toys. I fucking hate these characters. I hate the new Star Wars. There's no incentive for me to spend money on it. There's no... Nothing that makes me want to open my wallet and go take my money. Kylo Ren's about the only likable character. He's the only character I personally would spend the money on. Just come to think of it, I haven't spent much on any of the new Star Wars. I think I've got one die-cast vehicle from The Last Jedi and... A couple of Kylo Ren figures, but apart from that, that's it. So, as I was saying, is this a consumer or a product problem? From a consumer's standpoint, I'd say there's a problem with your product. Fans are not liking the products you're putting out, Disney. It's somehow the fans' fault when we backlash against your product. When we criticize the product, it's always the fans' fault. I mean, that's just a pretty dumb business practice. So, I'm sure I'm not the only collector out there that has a problem with some of the new stuff especially some of the new lines of toys. Uh, Most of the toy revenue is coming from new lines of old figures and old characters, such such as Kenner's Vintage range, which comes in vintage packaging and has a vintage style figure. There's even a remix of the old vintage figures that actually look like they did back in the 70s. There's the Black Series, there's the Galaxy of Adventures series, which still still relies on these old characters, aka Han, Luke, Leah, Chewie, and Vader, R2 and 3PO. So th- this is clearly an indication that no one's liking what you're selling, Disney. I don't see people lined up around the block to buy Finn or Rose or Ray toys. I mean, I mean sure, there's some collectors out there that will buy everything, and I have no problem with that. I uh, will probably get a couple of Stormtrooper figures at some point. They are pretty cool. 
but apart from that that's about the only likable characters in the film is Kylo Ren and Stormtroopers even then there's still a lot of problems so if Disney was relying on the revenue generated by toy sales to fund their next film they'd be in a lot of fucking trouble the toy sales are like literally like rock bottom at the moment there's Every time I've gone into stores, I see the same characters in the same lines. There's still Rogue One figures on shelves that haven't sold. There's um, still Force Awakens characters I see. You find them in bargain shops and around the place. The pop vinyl figures are the same way. You find the same characters from a Force Awakens in discount stores. I've seen them a few times, namely the uh, namely Han, Rey, Poe Dameron figures. I mean, shortly after its release, Star Wars Battlefront 2 was discounted. Uh, it dropped significantly, dropped by about $30 in, I think, about a month and a half, two months, which is pretty shit considering that the standard price of Call of Duty really doesn't drop until the next one comes out. And even then, it's it's discounted by about $30, and that's, that's after usually about a one-year period. So if fans really loved your new characters... And love the movies. Why aren't the toy sales higher? Why are they literally one of the worst stock commodities on the market at the moment? I mean, once what was once a bulletproof piece of merchandise now can barely be given away for under cost value. So we're talking like you can't even give these fig- put a dollar price tag on these figures and have fans buy them. They're that fucking bad and that undesirable. You know, we've in recent years there's been the closure of Toys R Us, which had an exclusive um, merchandising deal for certain characters, the Toys R Us exclusives. That's gone. Uh, I think even Disney has quoted, well, department stores have already brought the figures, so we really don't care too much. Which is also a knock-on effect to companies like Mattel and Kenner and, because they're stuck with a bunch of figures they can't sell. They're stuck with toys they can't sell, merchandise they can't move, and money they're not making. Which is once, like I said, was it was once... Ten years ago, it was bulletproof. You could release anything with Star, any Star Wars toys, any new line of Star Wars toys would have been snapped up instantly. This might have been true before the Force Awakens came out with the Force launch on Force Fridays. This is not the case a couple of years down the track. This is certainly not the case after people have seen the Last Jedi. I remember reading a quote somewhere from a Disney employee, or it was either Disney or a, Disney or one of the toy company employees. Saying that, well, the department stores have already brought the toys, so it's not our problem. But yet, when the next film comes out at the end of this year, are these the same department stores going to be ordering as many toys? Uh, I would say no. So if they couldn't sell the last batch of toys, why would they order as many the next time? It's a pretty bad investment. You get fucked over four times already, it's not going to happen a fifth. I've continued to buy and collect Star Wars toys and collectibles and pretty much most... Star Wars things related till this day I continue this tradition of going to the shops and on payday to get more figures when episode 2 and 3 came out I'd go to Kmart, Target, Big W on a weekly to fortnightly basis to hunt down the hard to find new toys and this has recently faded with the release of the Disney Disney trilogy and as a lot of diehard collectors and fans would agree uh, what in the fuck's name has happened to Star Wars I don't care I have the connection to the new characters or films as I did with the originals and prequels and yes I'm a prequel defender so what is the problem with Star Wars and how has it all fallen from grace have a quick break then we'll get into how this decline came about 
For those of you that don't know, back in 2012, George Lucas decided to retire and sell Lucasfilm. He met with Bob Iger, the head of Disney, to discuss Disney's potential acquisition of Lucasfilm. Anyone who knows George Lucas' history knows that he is no fan of big studios or the studio's power over the artists and its employees. He was a big fan of Disney and its business model long before the idea to sell Lucasfilm came about. George Lucas had a big respect for the on and off screen world that Disney had created. Uh, He was a big fan of the theme parks and this world creating that Disneyland has done so well. And you know, these, these business practices that Walt Disney had first employed. As it stands to reason, Disney has a was a logical choice to give them first dibs on the Star Wars Empire. Disney brought Lucasfilm in December of 2012 for an eye-watering $4.5 billion, half in cash and half in Disney stocks. So personally, I was skeptical of the new Star Wars trilogy by Disney. I'm not a big Disney fan, nor am I a fan of their let's buy everything so we can flood the market with endless movies and merchandising. The problem with these companies is they have to own everything and any of their competition. They already own Marvel and 20th Century Fox is next in its sights. Well, I think the deal's gone through. I think they now officially own, as of 2019, own 20th Century Fox. I was reading a great article on Forbes.com by Scott Mendelson. Uh, he is the he is a senior contributor to Forbes, and he covers uh, he covers the film industry, Hollywood and entertainment. So the article is called Avatar. My, Avatar might save Disney from a slump after Avengers and Star Wars. So the article, which outlined Disney's plans for future Star Wars and other Avatar films, and the success of Star Wars, could have an effect on the future of uh, Avatar films, which there are four sequels planned. He mentions in the article that one of Disney's strategy is to remind customers why you loved a franchise in the first place, such as why Avatar was the highest grossing film of all time, even if everyone has forgotten the magic of Pandora. Hence why there has been Pandora, the world of Avatar, at a walk-around attraction at Disneyland, as well as Avatar merchandise in their stores since 2017. The Fox deal is expected to be completed by mid by mid 2019. Judging by this model, Disney is setting the stage for the Avatar sequels to be as successful as the original. Whether or not this turns out to be true remains to be seen. So that's um, by Scott Mendelson. So he's got a point. Um, Disney Disney has a brilliant strategy of yeah reminding its audience that hey look Avatar's still out there. They want to spend a couple of years investing in getting people excited about future films even in my personal opinion I don't think anyone cares about Avatar anymore or the world of Pandora yeah it was great when it came out it was you know that first technology pushing 3D film like no other 3D film has ever lived up to it it was great at the time but yeah I don't know could I could I sit through it again I mean I, I do love Avatar I've got the special edition 14 hour director's cut it's good, but at the same time, I just don't really care about it as much anymore. And pushing four Avatar sequels with, you know, I think one comes out one year, then there's a year off, two back-to-back a year off, followed by the final one, which is the same tactic they're going to be trying for this new Star Wars trilogy that is slated to come out in 2021. 
2024 and I think 6. So basically they're going to have a new Star Wars every second Christmas. Once again, fitting a new film into a holiday season, having new toys come out at the same time. It's just they want revenue on all fronts. So this begs the question, why has Star Wars gone so bad? If the formula is solid, the end result should have been better. And why has there been a decline in sales from 2017 to 2018? Lucasfilm will have you believe that it is due to Star Wars fatigue. I don't think that it is. I think that's complete horseshit. The hardcore Star Wars fans will buy just about anything Star Wars. I mean, just recently I brought a whole bunch of Star Wars coffee mugs. It's not because I needed them. Uh, they had Star Wars characters on them. They looked cool. You know, one had Darth Vader, one had Chewbacca, or one had a Stormtrooper. They were, I thought they were cool. I've never used them to drink coffee out of. They're still sitting in their box. This is an example of... Is it really Star Wars fatigue, or is it just fans don't want the new products? They just don't like the new films, they don't like the new characters. There's no doubt that The Force Awakens was a global phenomenon. It was one of the highest grossing films ever. However, I thought The Force Awakens, in my opinion, was underwhelming to say the least. It was boring and unoriginal. Fans were so caught up by the height of The Force Awakens, I think a lot of them overlooked just how bad of a story it really was. I was hoping for something original, maybe a tie-in with... You know, the many books that take place after Return of the Jedi, such as the Thorn Trilogy, and not just an expensive New Hope ripoff. The other issue is that, as of 2014, Disney decided to recategorize what was deemed to be canon, meaning the films, TV shows, and selected written stories that came under Lucas Books. Basically, it was done to keep the Star Wars universe in order and not to be compromised and not to compromise George Lucas's vision. The EU, as it was known, included comics, games, and other media that, that differed from that of the original film timeline. Once again, in my opinion, just focusing on the Skywalker saga limits the mythology and size of the Star Wars universe. I get that marketing plays a part, and Disney probably think that diverting from the Skywalker saga won't appeal to the average Star Wars or movie fan. However, on the flip side of that, is they get to create a whole new universe of Star Wars characters and places that we haven't seen. I mean, how good would Knights of the Old Republic be, which I'm pretty sure is that new trilogy that has um, just been announced. I mean, I think, I think they're scared of being original and taking a risk that would more than likely pan out. The TV world seems to have taken a chance. Uh, the new Man- Mandalorian series looks incredible. The new live-action film, it's a darker, grittier Star Wars world that I think... A lot of adult fans have been wanting, with especially with the Disney sequel trilogy, they've really appealed to the younger audience, which I really has think has had a dramatic consequence on on the marketing and revenue. So I think I speak for a lot of diehard fans when I say that Star Wars is bigger than just the Skywalker saga. While I have the utmost respect for George Lucas' vision and the correct characters he created, there are more Star Wars stories that need to be told. Also, I would not be surprised if Disney Star Wars remade the original trilogy and prequel trilogy in their own image. After all, isn't that what Disney does best? Solo, Leah, Lando and Luke have already been recast, so why bother making an original film with new characters when we can just recast and re-envision the originals? Most diehard fans would projectile vomit at the thought. Let's face it, we would all still go see it just to hate it, and willing our hard-earned money over to the mouse. 
Okay, let's move along. The other colossal problem with Star Wars is the restructured gaming department. So, for you, who, for those who don't know, well, you'd be a bit of a dumb fuck if you didn't by this point. The gaming industry is fucking massive. It generates billions, if not trillions, of dollars in revenue through game titles and licenses. So, as of the, as of the 2013 takeover, Disney handed over exclusive rights to Star Wars games to to EA as part of a 10-year deal. Since then, EA has brought and closed down any other studio that was working on any other Star Wars titles or game ideas. EA has spent big money to acquire the rights to companies that were working on on any Star Wars titles. It could also be seen as buying up the competition to either control the market or to shut down anyone who might have a better game on the market. This is basically straight out of the Disney handbook. Buy up your competition, shut down anything that is a better product than yours. Unfortunately for EA, they have really bad timing when it comes to releasing titles like Titanfall 2, which was heavily discounted within the first few months of release. Titanfall 2 was a solid game. I enjoyed it. Uh, it, it only played the single-player campaign. EA released it a week before Call of Duty Infinite Warfare was released. So this asks you the question, where the fuck are the Star Wars games, EA? There are millions of fans begging for them, but they've only given us two games so far, which are 2015 Star Wars Battlefront and 2017 Star Wars Battlefront 2, which are both underwhelming to say the least. So Battlefront was an okay game. As far as graphics and playability, it was a stunning looking game. The environments and weapons and characters all looked great. Hoth was especially stunning. Echo Base was pretty much spot on, as were the trenches and the AT-ATs. But it was basically tailored to a, a multiplayer format, which at the time I wasn't playing a multiplayer games. There was an AI, AI campaign mode, but there was no single-player story. It was just battle after battle, and it wore thin, and it was great for about two weeks, and then it was, okay, this is getting pretty fucking boring. The mindset behind that decision to make it mostly, um, to make it an online-driven game was... In EA's mind, they think that no one plays a single-player format anymore, which is complete horseshit because some of the best games coming out at the moment are single-player focused. That narrow-mindedness of sticking to the multiplayer format, in my opinion, backfired because that because Battlefront was discounted. It was um, generally pretty poorly received by most fans and critics. So Battlefront 2 stepped up the visuals and added more locations and characters such as Darth Maul being a personal favorite. The new vehicle combat is excellent. Ship-to-ship combat was great, which was um, which was a which was a category that was missing from the original Battlefront. It was only after several updates that they included a few more different uh, modes and stuff, um, such as like, I think hero mode and a couple of others, which I, I can't really remember. So the new vehicle combat is excellent, the shooting is good, but it's nothing mind-blowing. Overheating guns get very annoying, especially when facing better players in multiplayer. The first game, the first game, like I said, it was only geared toward multiplayers, as there was no single-player campaign, which made it really frustrating if you're like me at the time, and I yeah, didn't partake in online gaming. That being said, the only way I could play was survival. I would have really loved to get into a vehicle and done some of the dogfights, but... Yeah, this is just a practice mode, which was, you know, fucking irritating. It wasn't a, it wasn't until the release of Walker Assault, Hero Modes, and a few other single-player modes 
that it really started to get good, which I think were months after release, if not years, I think. Don't quote me on that, but I think Walker Mode was, I think, nearly a year after its after its release. It was cool. I mean, it was it was good for a while, but it was yeah, it was nothing revolutionary. So Battlefront 2 included a pretty good single-player campaign, which had a decent story behind it, and it tied in with Episode 6 and 7 nicely. Just a shame that Force Awakens wasn't as original. Battlefront 2 had more modes in offline, and a good selection of modes in multiplayer. Battlefront 2's biggest standout is the dogfight mode. This is by far the best part of the game. The new locations are great, feed is stunning in its details, and is one of the most fun locations to play on. As is Camino, Camino was one of my favorite locations from the original Battlefront 2. What pisses me off is that there are just the areas you can't go into in the new levels that you could go to in the originals. Here I guess they're asked a little too easy, which yeah, what's the point spending the the points on but you know getting the Luke Skywalker or Darth Maul character if they get beaten by a bunch of battle droids in a couple of minutes. On the other hand, multiplayer is not that great. Uh, it is really hard to take on higher ranked players. So it's, it is definitely not a level playing field, which brings me to the next point. Okay, so let's talk about EA Games for a second. The CEO of EA Games is a charming businessman named Andrew Wilson. So according to Wikipedia, Andrew Wilson, he was born in Geelong. He's an Australian businessman who has been the CEO of Electronic Arts since September 2013. On September 18, 2017, he was elected as Director of Intel. So Wilson joined, <coughs> so this is under the career section, Wilson joined EA in 2000 and worked in the company's Asian and European markets for several years before moving to EA Sports and then becoming an executive producer of the FIFA franchise. In August 2011, he was appointed Executive Vice President of EA Sports. He also took on duties as Executive Vice President of the company's Origin platform in April 2013. Six months after the resignation of John Ricciatello, Wilson was chosen to be the new CEO of the company on September 17, 2013. In a blog post on EA's website, Wilson said that he was deeply honoured and humbled to take up the job and said he envisioned EA as the world's greatest games company. Unfortunately, Mr. Wilson, it hasn't really worked out like that. EA has been voted, I think, the worst company in America for, I think, several years in a row. The worst operated business. Their business practices are borderline illegal, to say the least, which we'll get into later. So this is the same guy that as his uh, Wikipedia bio states. So he was appointed executive vice president of EA Sports. So this is the, also the same guy that we have to thank for the microtransaction controversy. This is the same piece of shit that he willingly launched a gambling platform into video games. So the loot crate controversy started in the FIFA games. So is when they first introduced FIFA Ultimate Team, which by which you could go to Ultimate Team mode and you can build a build an ultimate team of superstars from various soccer clubs and put them on your own dream team pretty much. They've used the Ultimate Team mode in all their 
other sports licenses such as uh, NFL, Madden, NHL, and the NBA series. So basically, it relied on card trading packs, the same as the same way trading cards work in the in the real world. So uh, you know, you'd have a valuable player you might get in one pack of cards, or you might get a you might get one pack of cards that is pretty basic. So just like the real world, it relied on this mystery and chance-based, basically luck of finding a rare card hidden in a pack. So like most sporting cards, you'd have your basic pack, you'd have your, which you might get complete crap, you might get a couple of average players, and you'd have your, maybe a silver pack or something like that, and you might get someone different. You might get a better player or something, and you, if you had doubles, you'd use that as currency. So basically, EA appointed the same, basically the same system. They had a, I think you, I think you have bronze, silver, gold, and platinum. So each of these packs costs a different amount of credits or in-game currency, uh, with the randomization of getting a good player, an average, getting a average player, a medium-level player, or a superstar. So this ultimate team mode, so this is something that is used across the EA Sports series. Uh, it started with FIFA, and they moved the ultimate team to sports-driven games. So basically, the tiered system you could spend, uh, you spend a certain amount of credits, usually a higher amount of credits, which usually translates to real money, to buy the credits to use in game. Um, something like a, a gold card or a platinum card pack might might cost you. 5,000, 10,000 points with the randomized chance of you might get a Lionel Messi or a Cristiano Ronaldo caliber of player to use on your ultimate team. You might also get some type of managerial or admin skill, lower ranked players. There is also a system to manage double up players and cards through a trade system, but I'm pretty sure there's some controversy around that. Um, mainly not being able to trade players for the same amount of value you brought them for or you try you buy sell them for a lower value therefore you take a hit with the investment the other charming thing about ea games is like disney they buy it all their competition ea paid big money to buy the rights for fifa meaning that no one else can use the fifa brand in any of the games so they've monopolized fifa they've brought out the rights to nfl there used to be nfl 2k which is a far better game than or the 2k series in general is usually is a far better sporting game than anything EA's ever made they brought the rights to that they've shot anyone else out of the market they brought the rights to the NHL so the only sporting license they haven't completely monopolized yet is the NBA so NBA 2k series is a far better game than anything EA's ever put out and I'm, I'm not sure the reasoning why but they haven't been able to buy the they haven't been able to get sold rights to the NBA, leaving the 2K series as the only competitor for NBA games. They've brought them out of the NFL, but not the NBA for whatever reason. Yeah, so the only competitor to the soccer games is PSE, is Pro Evolution Soccer, or PSE Soccer for short. But in terms of sales, it's nothing compared to what EA makes in re revenue just for the FIFA games. So going back to Mr. Wilson, Mr. Wilson basically pioneered this microtransaction card pack loot box loot crates and shamelessly so ea in recent years has also copped a lot of shit for complete crap games and poor timing 
recently we've seen a huge controversy around gender politics in their games, um, namely Battlefield Five. There's a shitstorm around that game. Famously, at uh, one of the E3 conferences, someone challenged one of the developers of the game, or one of the owners, whatever the fuck he calls himself. He said that, I want historical accuracy in my games, not politics. And he said, well, don't go by the game. So fans didn't buy the game. You can pretty much judge a successful game by the amount of pre-orders. So no one pre-ordered Battlefield Five after the recommendation of this EA employee who uh, basically told people not to buy it if you don't like it. So the fans didn't like the product and hence didn't buy it. The price of that game is price of that game was slashed pretty um, pretty much just just after it came out. Its sales were pretty poor. So just checking the JB Hi-Fi website, Battlefield 5 is now $49. And that was released late last year. But once again, we have a better shoot war shooting game, war-based shooting game in Call of Duty. So the beta tests were released for Battlefield 5 that were not good. The multiplayer was pretty horrible. There was a lot of complaints and yet there was a lot of controversy surrounding that with backlash against people telling the company what they were doing wrong and how they could fix it and them not listening. So I could do a whole podcast just on that. There's some great YouTubers who explain it far better than I could about EA games, the loot crates and Mr. Wilson and the microtransactions and the Battlefield controversy. So moving ahead. By far the biggest fuck up EA made is the microtransaction loot crate controversy in which the way to level up in the multiplayer was a pay to win system. For non-gamers out there that means if you want to if you want to level a hero or soldier class up quickly, you pay real money to gain credits slash tokens or whatever the fuck they call them in game to purchase loot crates, which may or may not contain certain powerful cards or items that give a player an in-game advantage, such as such as a shield or a powerful weapon or you know a hero a rare hero card that gives a a hero such as Bubba Fett or Darth Vader, a longer lifespan or a more powerful weapon, a bigger shield bonus, anything like that. So if you're a player like me and you outrightly refuse to pay any more than the retail price for a game, uh, you have to level up by doing daily tasks like the contracts in Call of Duty, which can give you rare items the same as if you paid money for money for the tokens. It's just doing it in a more real-time slow away essentially but it's still more or less a loving playing field so I can do daily tasks get a crate and Call of Duty still get a decent decent level up I don't feel disadvantaged playing higher ranked players however in Battlefront 2 this is a different story Battlefront 2's problem is that the whole game is geared towards the pay to win system thus making the gameplay in Assault a pain in the fucking ass when you come up against players who are using a hero like Vader or Boba Fett or Luke who have paid hundreds of dollars in some cases uh, for crates and who are so far leveled up they are basically invincible on the battlefield. So I remember I was a level 14 stormtrooper uh, trying to shoot a level 99 ranked player as Boba Fett and I got my ass kicked. Like I'd, I'd respawn, get blown away. I got about two kills in the entire... The entire match, it was a fucking pain in the ass. It was basically impossible. You're running around going up against 
other players who are who are leveled up well ahead of you and it's just it's not a, play, a level playing field where in Call of Duty I don't feel like even when I started playing I got my ass kicked when I first played it but after a certain point you get the experience and the and the bonuses and the crates a low ranked player can kill a high ranked player just as easy but in Battlefront 2 this is pretty much um, yeah it's pretty much impossible to take on a higher leveled opponent which makes the game very unfun to play and the only way you can get any real satisfaction out of the level enjoyment out of the leveling up is to spend money on the crates they used to give you crates as part of the well every day they do a daily crates where you'd get a crate and I'd have five or so cards in it there's usually one or two that were either good or rare or something they'd get they they never get anything too good but it was good enough to keep you to keep you playing until you you know you could get enough tokens in in the game to either buy another crate with the tokens you've earned through daily tasks or matches or whatever but they'd usually give you a couple of items and you might get a an emote or a hero card or some type of soldier class card that would be that would be decent at least but now they've changed it and you get basically credits and maybe some pointless emote card so EA has made millions of dollars of extra revenue using the system which they started in FIFA 09 ultimate team mode where you could buy card packs to get better players to use uh, on your ultimate team this is a mode of FIFA, I think where it's like a kind of like an all-star thing. I've never played FIFA. So this extended to all of their sport games uh, from then on. I had to research this as I didn't know much about the um, about the microtransaction loot crate controversy. I got a lot of good information from Lookup Skill and Total Biscuit videos on YouTube. If anyone, if anyone wants to know more about the uh, about the history of loot crates and the absolute cunt who created the system, unfortunately, this has ruined the game. The game itself is pretty fun. Once again, the environments, graphics, characters, and vehicles all look great. The gameplay is smooth. The dog dog fights are the most entertaining part of the game. You know, there is twice as much to do than its predecessor. There is a relatively good single player campaign. It does have its faults. The single player AI is a is a big step up from the first and there seems to be an endless supply of updates and new content you know such as the battle of geonosis and new characters that are added to the lineup every couple of months or so but still the microtransactions have ruined the fun of the multiplayer experience by being greedy cunts is it any wonder that the sales for both battlefront games have been so low or that ea has been voted the company in the US that has been voted the worst company in the United States. But I know the trouble hasn't stopped for EA. The company has faced gambling accusations leading back to their microtransaction saga. At present, there are over 16 countries, including the US, the UK, Europe, and Australia, taking legal action against gaming companies that have exploited their customers. Uh, there are also local police investigations into the targeting of miners and the links to link illegal gambling sites being advertised to miners through gaming platforms. <laughs> so according to a study conducted by the Parliament of Australia, 
titled Gaming Microtransactions for Chance-Based Items. This is a 90-page report that you can find on aph.gov.au. So this is a 90-page report on, on microtransactions and their potential for harm. Um, I'm going to read a little bit of it just to give you a brief outline of some of the findings. So the introduction and referrals in terms of reference. On the 28th of June 2018, the Senate referred the following matter to the Environment and Communications References Committee for Inquiry and Report by 17th of September 2018. The extent to which gaming microtransactions for chance-based items, sometimes referred to as loot boxes, may be harmful with particular reference to a whether the purchase of chance-based items combined with the ability to monetize these items on third-party platforms constitutes a form of gambling and b the adequacy of the current consumer protection and regulatory framework for in-game microtransactions the chance-based items including international comparisons age requirements and disclosure of odds the report compromises five chapters as following. Chapter one provides an introduction and overview of gaming microtransactions for chance-based items, recent public concern regarding the issue and international responses. Chapter two explores whether gaming microtransactions for chance-based items constitutes gambling under Australian regulatory frameworks. Chapter 3 examines the evidence received that gaming microtransactions for chance-based items meets the psychological definition of gambling and the potential for harms associated with interaction with these mechanisms. Chapter 4 outlines possible government responses to the issue. Chapter 5 provides a committee view and recommendations. So a quick introduction into the study. Um, many video games incorporate microtransaction, a broad concept extending to any model that provides a consumer with an option of making small purchases within a game or other application, microtransactions are typically made using game points, real-world money, or both. Most most games have that that setup. You can either choose to buy more points, or you can earn them through tokens or in-game currency by, as I've said before, doing daily tasks or challenges. Microtransactions may involve a direct purchase of specific in-game content or features including items, i.e. outfits, vehicles, weapons, tools, etc. Mission or quest packs, new game modes, and extra playtime. Among, among other things, microtransactions may also involve the purchase of a virtual item that contains a variable selection of other virtual items, chance-based items, which are sometimes called loot boxes, loot crates, mystery boxes, price crates, and other similar names. Gaming microtransactions for chance-based items called loot boxes for the purpose of this inquiry are included in some video games to provide players with a way to obtain virtual items for in-game use. The items in loot boxes vary but typically include collectibles, character outfits, game points, player bonuses and weapons, camouflages or skins, some virtual items are functional side grades or upgrades, that players may use functionally in-game play, i.e. useful tools, armor, weapons, or abilities, whereas others are simply cosmetic items. A list of possible items contained in loot boxes may be, but is not always provided to players. A specific item received is randomly selected once payment is authorized. 
A common variation is the periodical prov provide players with boxes for free but require them to purchase a key to open the box. This is a format that Division uses. You need to craft a key or obtain items to craft a key to open a, a specific box you might get. Virtual items can be hold significant value to players based on their potential to facilitate or assist gameplay or provide desirable cosmetic features, such as, as I was talking about with Battlefront 2. It gives special hero characters, basically makes them invincible from a standard player by upgrading to a point that you basically can't hurt them. And you can't, I mean, they just run around the battlefield just destroying everybody because they're leveled so far up, no one's ever going to come near them. And this usually comes from players who have spent a significant amount of money to purchase these like like they said mystery boxes to get a random a random piece of armor or an upgrade or an ability that you can use in game against the other players so back to the uh, report there are a number of tools there are a number of types of loot boxes available in games these can be categorized according to the method of acquisition and whether the items contained within the loot box can be monetized. Methods for acquisitions are as follows. Gameplay loot boxes are awarded to players as a result of gameplay achievements such as hours played or missions completed. Gameplay with purchase key. Loot boxes are provided to players during gameplay but players must purchase a key to open the loot box. Purchase. Players purchase a loot box and are able to open it to obtain random items within. So the report goes on to detail the, well, basically what loot crates are, um, the basically the structure system, the revenue system, uh, how they can be helpful, how it categorizes itself as gambling, because uh, it's that thrill, that rush of, you don't know what you're going to get, a lot of gamblers have that rush when you know, you're betting on something you just don't you don't know what you're going to get um, and that's half the rush of getting it so that 2017-2018 public backlash led to game developers either removing existing loot boxes from games or releasing new games without loot boxes for example Shadow of War removed its loot boxes yeah the Lord of the Rings Shadow of War game copped a lot of shit for basically the same similar thing so Far Cry 5 and Monster Hunter World have minor microtransactions but no loot box element at all. And God of War and Spider-Man are using the lack of loot boxes as a marketing tool. So Fortnite, currently the most popular game globally, has a microtransaction system that is entirely loot box free. The Battle Pass lets players pay $10 a season for earned cosmetic rewards and those cosmetics can also be flat purchased outright without randomization and blizzard games heathstone and overwatch dramatically increased the quality of drops for players disallowing legendary cards slash skin duplicates so players could amass more of the best items more quickly well that's the other problem is that you get double ups of items costumes weapons and something you usually get a below value trade for them i.e you get some points but not enough points if you were to to go out to use points to buy that gun or costume separately so they've got this kind of like this rig system going on where it relies on randomization but at the same time if you get a duplicate it's usually not worth as much 
and if you've paid, you know, if you've paid seventy nine dollars for fifteen hundred tokens and a legendary loot box is worth six hundred tokens, and you've got you know a double up item, well, you've lost a decent amount amount of real world money. The article goes on to also include international regulatory responses. As a result of public concern, regulators around the world have begun to consider whether loot boxes should be considered a form of gambling and regulated accordingly. International regulators have come to differing conclusions and implemented a range of responses. The following sections outline the approaches taken in a number of uh, jurisdictions, Denmark, the Danish Gambling Authority, in response to an increased number of public inquiries, issued a public statement on loot boxes clarifying when a game would fall under the auspices of the, of the Danish Gambling Act. The statement noted that games must be licensed when three criteria are met. There must be a deposit, there must be an element of coincidence, and there must be a prize. Where the prize is a virtual item, it must be able to translate into financial terms. The Danish Gambling Authority examined a number of well-known video games containing loot boxes and observed that where virtual items cannot be sold or otherwise converted into money, the Gambling Act would not apply. However, it stated that where items can be sold on third-party websites and thus converted into money, then the Gambling Act would apply. The Gambling Authority concluded that loot boxes must be considered individually as it is not possible to generally assess whether the items won in a loot box can be converted into money therefore it cannot be excluded that loot boxes may in some cases be covered by the act of gambling so the Danish Gambling Authority also recognized the importance of protecting children and young people and emphasized the importance of parents taking an interest in the games played by their children and discussing responsible gambling behavior. That goes on listing the different countries and their policies on on if it's, if it's gambling or not, which I think it's generally considered that it is. Uh, the randomization of a reward, the thrill aspect, the real financial aspect of it. We have like, like EA games who have been warned and who just don't seem to care because they're still implementing the same pay-to-play system in their games. They just do not seem to care that they've been warned by these governments that it constitutes as gambling. I think there was even a some type of settlement that was reached saying that if they rated their games, gave them an R rating or an adult rating, and included on that packaging that this contains gambling, they could still had their monetized monetary system in the in the game but the problem with that is then you can't an m-rated game or a pg game or most of their highest selling games are sport games are usually between g and pg and like star wars battlefront is an m-rated game so your sales take a huge hit if you're rating you know fifa 20 r-rated and that's the problem is they're not willing to lose that money but they're quite but they're quite happy to rip customers off through these microtransactions i mean i've had people of people spending onwards of $50,000 to get higher upgrades in games it's it's a it's fucking ridiculous they have no shame about doing it yeah i mean it's if you're looking at it as a business aspect it's it's a genius move but they're also a bunch of fucking pricks for doing it at the same time 
especially it's gone under the radar for this long. I mean, there's probably a lot of kids out there who are going to become current gamblers because of it. So chapter three goes on to describe the psychology and loot boxes. This is a particularly interesting um, psychological definitions of gambling. It was agreed that many loot boxes met the physical... It was agreed that many loot boxes met the psychological definition of gambling. Even where they do not meet the legal definitions, in particular, submitters highlighted the criteria used in psychology literature to distinguish gambling from other forms of risky behavior. The criteria used to identify gambling activity are as follows. The exchange of money or valuable goods, an unknown future event determines the exchange. Chance at least partly determines the outcome. Non-participation can avoid incurring losses and winners gain at the sole expense of losers. Dr. James Sawyer and Dr. Andrew Drummond Sawyer and Drummond explained that to meet these criteria, a loot box system would need to be purchased for real-world currency, be accessed after payment is made, provide a reward determined at least partly by chance, and be optional, i.e. players must be able to choose not to buy the loot box. The Sawyer and Drummond submitted that the fifth psychological criterion that player profit at the expense of losers would only be met if the obtained reward players win if the obtained reward provides winners with a direct competitive advantage over losers in future gameplay. Sawyer and Drummond described this as a conservative approach Dr. Sawyer told the committee. This is kind of like what I was talking about with heroes being leveled up so far. They have this unrealistic advantage over anyone else playing the game. So this is a quote from Dr. Sawyer. We've adopted a fairly conservative interpretation of this and thought that it only occurs where players might gain some sort of real-world competitive advantage in future games. This is not the only way you might conceptualize value. The combination of scarcity of items, desirability of items, and the social state of, of items may well contribute to people wanting these items. And, and the desirability and the value that they have to people. So yes, this article just goes on like the psychological mechanisms. Um, it's, it's a pretty interesting report. So once again, that is found on aph.gov.au uh, gaming microtransactions for chance-based items so as I was going through this report I found some pretty interesting things this on just economic challenges section 1.26 the committee heard evidence that over the past two decades retail prices have not increased however the costs associated with the production and development of video games have increased significantly Mr. Rizzi GDAA explained Retail prices have been flat for about two decades, so you could argue that they've gone down while the development budgets have gone into the billions of dollars. In some cases, they dwarf the largest film productions. So, AAA games today. For your $60 or $100 outlay, an EB Games game can provide hundreds of hours of gameplay, but the cost of development have increased. So too have the online development costs for development and on for development and online support costs because these games now run those games as a service. So fair enough. I mean, it stands to reason that development costs would go up, but I would really love to see the accounts of some of these gaming companies. Can they have gone up that much? I mean, can they? Can you really argue that the 
that the development process of Call of Duty is uh, more expensive than it was last year. I mean, essentially, it's the same game. It's the same format. I mean, yeah, the core game mechanics might have changed. The development process and the technology has gotten better, but it's still a first-person shooter. While I was going through this report, I found a pretty interesting section under Public Concern, Section 1.29. It pretty much reinstates what I've been saying about EA and Battlefront. As noted above, loot boxes have been included in video games for many years. However, Electronic Arts, EA, released Star Wars Battlefront 2 in 2017, containing a new type of loot box with items which provide a player with advantages such as stronger characters or items, which, which substantially increase the damage, health and fire rate of a player's character. The introduction of this pay-to-win approach led to widespread outrage in the gamer community and public pressure influenced EA to remove pay loot boxes from the game. Mr. Mizzy G GDAA explained, Key iconic Star Wars characters would be available from the game purchase, but a lot of those were locked behind further long form grind mechanics, where a player would have to complete long tasks over a long period of time to unlock these rewards. But the economy inside the game allowed a player to shortcut these mechanics with real money. So you could buy Darth Vader now, or you could play 60 hours to unlock Darth Vader. This process, which is hugely disliked by gamers around the world, is called nickel and diming. Also, I think the combining of the Star Wars franchise and the Battlefront franchise, which is huge, was a huge media draw, so it gained a lot of attention. It is also my belief that the outrage around these loot boxes really hit a nerve in Western audiences. The pay-to-win mechanic is actually quite accepted in Eastern cultures. I'm not advocating that that is right. It is really around the pay-to-win mechanic. So this has brought loot boxes to the wider mass media consensus and has triggered a lot of healthy discussion. So that pretty much backs up everything I was saying about more myself and others have been saying about the Star Wars loot box controversy. I think I've rambled about that enough. That's just one of one of the controversies EA, EA Games has faced in recent years. There is the Battle 5, 5 diversity in war, bullshit, um, Titanfall 2 sales, Mass Effects, microtransactions. But by far one of their most despicable acts in recent years is the buying out and shutting down and complete destruction of game companies that had successful franchises or projects in the works that were better than the substandard regurgitated garbage EA produces on a yearly basis. Which brings up the cruelest blow to Star Wars fans, Star Wars 1313. So Star Wars 1313 was a game in production by LucasArts which became a victim of the EA takeover the game was launched in 2012 and announced publicly at the 2012 E3 Expo before 1313 was murdered by EA. The game had been in development for several years and had gotten to the stage where it had its own trailer and game footage. The game centered around a young Boba Fett working with a crew of bounty hunters on Coruscant. It was set on level 1313 of Coruscant's murky and seedy underbelly. The game was aimed at more of an adult audience, which makes sense as a majority of gamers are over 35 and not kids, as a lot of media would have you believe. Uh, a lot of previous 
Star Wars games have been like the Lego Star Wars series, which are really only aimed at kids. Uh, so the Disney EA deal saw the rights of Star Wars intellectual property transfer to EA, including several titles that were in development. So EA owns several companies that were working on Star Wars titles that were either cancelled at varying stages of production. Uh, EA has also put out also put out of business various successful studios, including Visceral Games, Pandemic Studios, and Black Box Games uh, are just a few on the casualty list. The reasoning behind the cancellation of 1313 was that gamers are not interested in single-player campaigns, only multiplayer. As 1313 was a story-driven single-player game that was likened to Naughty Dog's Uncharted series. And, well, we know how successful Uncharted was. No multiplayer until the last game, I th- Uncharted 4, I think. And that was, I think, one of Naughty Dog's biggest... Uh, franchises the Uncharted games were hugely successful they were single player story driven games uh, just recently you've had the launch of Days Gone which is no multiplayer at all it's uh, it's well I don't think there is any multiplayer I haven't really looked that hard but it's basically a giant open world uh, story driven character driven game so that statement by EA that gamers are just not interested in single-player games is a complete crock of fucking shit. People still want stories in their games. They just don't want mindless, just multiplayer shit. Yeah, multiplayer games are fun. They're great. Uh, I'd love nothing more than on Call of Duty Online, but at the same time, I like story. I like immersing yourself in an open world uh, in a character that's believable. And to have that in a Star Wars game would have been... It would have been magical. Playing, you know, Bubba Fett on this new more adult driven Star Wars universe that would have been I mean that would have been fucking incredible I'm sure I'm not alone in saying that 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 would have been a hugely successful game if EA had have not cancelled it if they had brought the rights finished production kept the original crew on then you know we wouldn't be nearly what what is it seven years into their into their Star Wars deal and have two games Alright, so back to what I was saying. So what a bunch of out-of-touch morons. Someone really should have told EA that Uncharted was one of their most successful franchises in the last 15 years. Like like I was saying, this is mainly due to its unique action style and its focus on the story and not repetitive multiplayer. After the cancellation of 1313, EA decided to put into production another Star Wars game, this time an open-world game, but they decided to cancel this one after production had begun. This is, you know, once again, they just... Anything half original, anything that could that could actually make a decent amount of profit and that would be loved by fans, they seem to cancel. So I have no idea what the reasoning or the thought process is at some of these studios. They just seem to want to pistol over the fans time after time. They don't seem to give two shits about fans or customers of theirs. I mean, we're the ones paying for their games. You piss off gamers enough, they're not going to buy don't piss off gamers, it's bad for business. So it's just, why do they keep doing this? They've cancelled two, which would have been fantastic Star Wars games, for no apparent reason. Whether this was to push the Battlefront title, well, in my opinion, it was because of the microtransactions. They could, they probably thought they could make more money and fool more people by the microtransactions on Battlefront 2 than, oh, we've got two games in production that we don't have multiplayer Therefore, we can't just 
Can't try and suck more money out of customers. So fuck you, EA Games. So, to this day, the fate of 1313 is still up in the air. According to internet sources and Kathleen Kennedy, Disney are thinking really hard about finishing it. What is to fucking think about? Finish it, get it out, the fans will go fucking nuts for it. There is also an independent studio that is willing to finish it without the Star Wars license, so I think it was going to be known as 1313, uh, because obviously the Star Wars name is now property of the mouse. EA is so out of touch with their customers and the games market, they seem to think it's justified that they can make a shit game than charge their customers more money if they want a multiplayer experience that doesn't make you want to launch a console or PC at the fucking wall. If they focused on recreating or updating the original Battlefront games, I mean, hell, I'd, I'd be happy if they just remastered the originals. I'd pay for that again. I would be over the moon... I wouldn't care if I had to pay a hundred bucks for it. Just give me the original two Battlefronts. Star Wars fans and gamers wanted the original Battlefront experience, not the underwhelming rip-off in every sense of the word, bastardization of the Star Wars universe. So go fuck yourself EA, thanks for nothing. So far they have produced two lackluster Star Wars games since the 10 year deal started in 2013. Compared to the over 30 games launched by Lucasfilms from 2003 to 2013. Gary Witter, one of the writers of Rogue One, who has had some interesting things to say about the state of EA Star Wars. He's been pretty critical of whatever business decision was is behind um, EA's, EA's inability to produce any Star Wars games. They produced two, sure, but... It's just, uh, there's just, it, baffle, it baffles me about the business model that they're, that they're working from. So, let's hope Jedi Fallen Order actually comes out at the end of the year and is not complete shit. Jedi Fallen Order is another Star Wars title EA has had in production. It's been in production for a while, but release date is November 2019. It's, uh, it's going to be a... Episode 3, Episode 4 tie-in. Uh, it's going to uh, revolve around one of the few remaining Jedi that didn't, that wasn't killed in the Purge uh, from, Re- from Revenge of the Sith. Basically a very story-driven game, which, you know, this is, this is pretty different coming from EA. So, fingers crossed that it's going to be worth the wait and worth the money. So that is the end of Part 1 of my epic Star Wars rant. I hope you've all enjoyed it. And if you didn't, you go fuck yourself. Make sure you uh, come back in a couple of weeks because I have part two, which will be looking at the restructuring of um, restructuring of the Star Wars expanded universe under under the Disney takeover, which will have some of the comics and some of the novels, and then we'll be looking at the Star Wars sequel trilogy and its spin-offs. If that incites your curiosity, make sure you subscribe, leave a review. I am a tank. This is the truth. You're listening to The Truth Tank. May the truth be with you.